Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. Listen to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan. And I've got Roshan Ingle sitting here opposite me, and she's had a really busy week. Yes, well, me I'm kind of jealous of her industry, actually. <laughs> well, Jennifer and I have been off making another podcast, and it's called Back to Yours, and it launched this week, so it's very exciting. And I listened to it. Did you? And I think it's. I hope you the, liked the, it. The, the, Don't the, say if you didn't like it. Well, it's with Marion Keys, and. I think it's wonderful. It's very, it's tender, it's honest, it's it brings you right back to the days when Marion was was a was a young one flouncing around London, and it's kind of sad at times, uh, but you also get the fun side of her and the sense of her house, the real sense, which I know was a huge part of your your reasoning behind this. Um, and the T-shirt shaped chairs. Oh yeah, I don't can know you picture them? A, I kind of can. I tried to. Um, so there's there's a lot of fun in it, and yet it is absolutely. I think it's marvelous listening. It's great. Well, basically the whole idea of it, as you said, is to go back to people's houses and to look at the house they live in now, but also to return to their childhood and the different homes where things happened to them over the years. So it's a really nice way of telling the story of someone's life through the homes they lived in. And it sort of cuts out the need to go into every single biographical detail because really you're just talking about this house, then that house. And and by that way, you get to kind of learn about the person. So we have coming up some really good ones. We've got John Boyne in the next episode. We'll have Dolly Alderton, who was great. We, we went over to her house in her apartment in London. We have... Um, Rose McGowan as well, who's obviously the amazing Me Too uh, campaigner. So I think it's going to be great. And it's been brilliant fun to make and to do something different and to go off into. So if anyone can go and have a listen and if you like it, write a review. It all helps to get the podcast out there. It's called Back to Yours. And they should have a listen because it, 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 sounds, kind of, it sounds kind of sort of light and fluffy, the idea of going to somebody's house and looking around it and stuff. But in fact, this brings you right back to Marion's early years living in her own house, in her own family home, living with her parents and also to the places she lived in London. And it reminds you in some cases, if you have a home now, of course, how very lucky we are. Yeah. That we, you know, our, our, our decor now, our sense of the kind of places we deserve to live in, the brightness of our homes, all those things, because everything was so brown back then. <laughs> and that's what Marion reminded me of when she was talking. Um, and also talking about her mother and wanting to live away from that, from her. But now she ends up living, I don't know, about five very minutes down the road her, yeah. from her. Um, so there's a lot of stuff in it and, and getting the stuff from how she entertains or doesn't entertain well, she doesn't as she really likes to put it. Yes. No, she can't uh, getting the bag in from Mao and just putting it on the table and they all tear away at it. There's so much to listen to in this, as well as a 
a bit of sort of sociological background, I think I would encourage everybody to listen and do write a review. Thank you very much, Cathy. That is great. I'm glad I have your, is it imprimatur? Is that the word? I absolutely have my imprimatur. I'll be listening to all of them. And they were a great mix of guests, actually. Well, listen, speaking of something else that launched this week, I was at Sinead Gleeson's book launch last night, very briefly, because I have a... Which was jammed, I gather. Jam-packed. Well, Sinead is such a tour de force, you know, in so many ways. And... Uh, Anne Enright wrote the most, read the most beautiful speech to launch her book um, Constellations. Is the name of, of, of as of, is the name of Sinead's um, collection of essays. And I just wanted to read a little bit about what, what Anne Enright said about Sinead because they've become quite close friends. But Sinead has been quite influential on Anne Enright in terms of her feminism in recent years because Anne would have talked about how she wasn't how Sinead would be quite a sharp feminist and very involved and how you know, different generation, even though they grew up actually quite close to each other, that she wasn't quite so, but that that Sinead had that influence on her. So she said, um, Sinead represents something to me personally. She's my younger generation. And asking what makes her the way she is is also a question about how Ireland changed in the years after I was born. What made her different and in some ways more able to speak? What made her, for example, a sharper feminist than me? Was it the way my generation got the shit kicked out of us by the referendums of the 1980s or the way the Catholic Church got into our dreams? Were we more poor then? But every generation says, we had it so hard. You don't know how we suffered. And every new generation says, we suffered. We fucking suffered. What are you talking about? And that's a direct quote, <laughs> by the way, from Sinead Gleeson there. And says, but it's a really, it was a really gorgeous tribute to Sinead, like an older writer talking about a younger writer, but they clearly have such a, a good relationship. And, and so many beautiful things were said about Sinead's book. I've read a couple of the essays from it because they appeared in Granta and it really is incredible writing. And it's a lot about the body, um, but it looks outwards as well as it's, you know, Sinead was saying last night, it's not so much a memoir as a kind of, you know, a, a sort of discussion that looks definitely outward. And that's why she likes the essay as a form, because you're able to look away from yourself. So a little bit of memoir, but really so just... Sinead Gleeson and Anne Enright, what a combination. Well, exactly. I would have paid to go to that. Actually. No, it was very good. And, and the thing is, Sinead, as she always does, she championed all the writers in the country and all the booksellers. And, you know, she's been such a stalwart of that industry for so long. It's really lovely to see her have her moment with her book. And her little children were there as well and her husband. So it was lovely. So we have Mother's Day coming up. Have you anything lined up for Anne Engel? Uh-huh. <laughs> Who, my goodness, deserves everything good that she is available does. in the world. She really does deserve everything. Um, I was out with Anne Engel this week because we do this thing every year called the Sean Moore Awards, which are these community awards in Rings End. And somehow uh, through the years, I've got roped into sort of emceeing them, which is actually every year I kind of go, oh, not this again. And then I, I just, I have to write all the citations. And it's just fantastic because there are people who are, putting, you know, flowers in the boxes or they're tidying up around the streets or, you know, there was one young fella there who was being, um, got his award because he was walking up the East Link Bridge. He saw this woman submerged in the water on steps who was going to take her own life. And, you know, he's a young fella. He's 19 and he went away from his friends. He sat with a woman for an hour on the steps and then uh, he hailed a taxi, brought her to James's hospital. And things like that, just, you know, everyday kind of heroes. Um, anyway, we were out and it was lovely just to be with her in Ring's End and just always reminds me of like growing up in Sandy Mount and she's still so connected to that community even though she lives in Fibsborough now. But yeah, I would just like to say I am very lucky in my mother and she's going to be 80 in August. And she, despite really trying circumstances when we were growing up, gave me such a sense of security and love. And I think 
we we know about poverty, but there's other kinds of poverty that you can have. You can have all the money in the world and you can still feel, you still not necessarily have that security in the love of your mother or the love of the people who are bringing you up. So I feel really lucky that even though she wasn't able to give us things that um, maybe other people had, it really was a case that I never felt deprived. I never felt less than anybody else because she was such a powerful figure in my life in terms of just making everything fun and making everything positive. So I suspect she's getting it back from you in Spain. Ah, that's nice to say. Well, um, we just, we get on very well, which is really nice. It's and nice as to my, have little, my little contribution to Mother's Day, I'm going to read a little extract from a letter that appeared in the Irish Times yesterday, written by a man called Eamon Keating. This is just a little excerpt from it. While flowers or vouchers will be welcome, this is an opportunity to aim higher than mediocre. Two hours weeding and preparing the garden. A subscription service with playlists of her favourite songs, accompanying her to a special place of childhood memories. A gift that reflects thought and appreciation, not cash. Take the time to compose three thoughtful sentences. When you have crafted them, transfer the message to a card you have chosen rather than one handed to you, lads. Eamon Keating, I take my hat off to you and I hope your mother is in great form and we'll take this opportunity to wish every mother... Every mother, and it's a hard job. And as being a father is a hard job as well. But um, but this is Mother's Day. It's Mother's Day, so we're talking about mothers. And also, Cathy, I hope you get uh, spoiled on Sunday as well for Mother's Day by your lovely daughters. Well, who knows? <laughs> surprise! They'll surprise you. I'll surprise Anne Ingle because yeah, I've got loads planned. Oh yeah, big deal. My mum has never been a Mother's Day person. She doesn't want anything. I don't want a card. I, okay. I hate the cards and I'm not mad about the flowers either to be honest with you. I okay. think Eamon Keating is spot on. Yeah, there's some good suggestions there. There are. But happy Mother's Day as you said to, to and everyone. And the same to you and to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> so Cathy, what delights have you got coming up for us in this episode? Well actually, this really was a delight for me. I knew all about Maureen de Borca but I'd never met her and I could have talked to her for six weeks and I say that with my hand and my heart. She is a legend. Uh, I'm sure many of you are well aware of who Maureen de Burke is, but for anyone listening to this who might not be, she's a fearless Irish activist who was a founding member of the Irish Women's Liberation Movement. And I'm telling you this now, her, she is 81, and normally age doesn't matter, but I've rarely seen such a dynamo. She still runs the Credit Union and Fairview, and she moves and talks like someone 50 years younger. She really is an inspiration. She instigated the movement's famous contraceptive train and later was a prime mover in a legal case which won the right for women to sit on juries. In a lifetime of activism, Maureen has been jailed for anti-Vietnam war activities and fined for attacking Richard Nixon's car during his 1970 Irish visit, but has never given up. And she's the subject of a new documentary by Cahill Black called A Loner's Instinct, which will be screened at the Irish Film Institute in Dublin on April the 8th. The film interweaves interviews with Maureen herself, commentary from colleagues and poetic reimaginings of moments in her life with wonderful photography, capturing the spirit of a woman with an acute sense of social justice and the tireless determination to achieve it. And she also has this amazing quality, which I noticed during the interview. She is incredibly conciliatory. She doesn't whinge or complain or carp. She sees life in all in, in, in its very rounded way and sees people in such a rounded way. And if somebody changes their mind, then they change their mind. You know, they left. So Sounds what? Brilliant. They gave their best to the movement. Can't wait to hear it. I spoke to Maureen about the many movements she's been involved in and about her membership of Sinn Féin. But I began by asking her about her early life. Maureen, you left school at 13. I did. What year was that? Oh, uh, if I was born in 38, 48. 
And you'd had quite a circuitous life before that. Just tell us a little bit about your early life before that. Well, I was born in Dublin, so I'm not American. (laughs) I have to tell everybody that in the present circumstances. Um, (laughs) Born in Dublin, but as a baby, went back. My parents had lived in the States, you see, and I suppose my mother just came home to have the baby. I don't know the the reason or anything. But I went back as a baby, and then, of course, the war broke out. Uh, My parents had always said they'd come, come home and stay at home, but then the war kind of put the the kibosh on that, if you like. Uh, But we did come home in 47. It took that long for the uh, torpedoes to be, uh, what is it, blown up, I suppose, in the bottom of the sea or whatever, for the seas to be safe. Yeah. Uh, So we came home in 47 and I went to Newbridge Convent School where my mother had gone. Your father, Maureen, was a carpenter. Carpenter in Marshall Fields. Marshall Fields at that time was the tallest building in in Chicago, I think, yes, when you think about it. Uh, he was the head carpenter in, in Marshall Fields. Yeah. So he stayed there to finish his time, you know, and to... to he did, to because that's a, that's a fascinating part of your story, that that yourself and your mother came mm. back. And my brother. And your brother. And the dog. And the dog. And the dog. Came back as well. He brought the dog. And your father stayed there. And did he come back I many think he years only later? Had, I think he only had a couple of years, two or three years to finish, to get his pension, his full pension and everything. So it made sense that he finished his time and then came home. And were you talking about secrets in the family that you've tried to... Yeah, the brother that died. Yes. Yeah, I've never been able to. I'll, I'll go to my grave not knowing. And that's that's a real regret. I, I only want to know where he's buried. Oh, he was sent back to Ireland. He was sent back to Ireland yeah. on his own. I don't, I don't, I never got the full story. By but he father. was on his own. And I was told that when he arrived in Cove, he had pneumonia. And of course, pneumonia in 19, whatever it was, was a killer. No antibiotics. And he died. Um, now, I don't know if he was in hospital in Cork. I haven't, I suppose. And, but I have had somebody who, who, who does these things trying to follow it up, but it's, it's almost impossible. Isn't it one of those strange stories from yes, those times? Yes, that yes. And it, it destroyed my parents' lives, yes. but they would never talk about it. That's the difference between then and now. You know, if, if they had talked about it to us, and we'd toddle down to wherever his grave is and laid a few flowers and, you know, open about it. Never, ever spoken about. So that really did shape your life, Maureen? To a degree. It did to a de- degree. Yes, it did. I have to say it did because it destroyed my parents' lives who, you know, who couldn't really concentrate on the children they had. I mean, my mother did, to a degree, smother Michael, uh, a boy that I sort of now feel was adopted. Uh, I don't think he was my full brother. But again, I don't know, and I'm never going to know. So you left school at 13, mm. and was the, you, were, you were living in Newbridge at the time, and you were going to school in Newbridge. Mm. Convent, um, yeah. Yeah. And were you encouraged to stay on, or what no, was it like then? No, education wasn't important in our family. You left school the minute... You were legally entitled. And you were legally entitled at 13? At 13, because by the time I was uh, 14, 14 was the cut-off period uh, legally at the time, but by the time uh, 14 came, it was January, and I was um, I was legal, if you know what I mean. So you were sent off to make a living at 13? I went and I got a job in the shop in Newbridge. For five shillings a week or something? Yes, five shillings a week, and something like 80 hours a week. <laughs> it 80 was, hours? Oh, it was unbelievable, the hours you, you, you had to put in. I mean, I, I, I remember going home on Christmas Eve, meeting the people coming to Midnight Mass. 
the shop would stay open till half eleven on Christmas Eve to to facilitate the farmers, of course. You know, I mean, it was it was old Ireland. The farmers would have to milk and feed the calves and do everything on the farm before they'd go in and do the shopping. So we were there until half eleven. I met the people coming into Midnight Mass going home on Christmas Eve and it wasn't much different any other Saturday. So what we're doing here, Maureen, is we're, I'm, we're trying to work out what it was that made you such an a lifelong activist and so very gritty and determined in everything you well, did. Well, I think that the, the family situation because I was very much left on my own, very much because apart from, from the child dying and everything, I was a girl and girls in our family were not, people weren't interested in them. So you kind of got on with, with rearing yourself mm. and, and making your own plans and deciding for yourself what you wanted to do. There was no parental guidance, if you like, which in a way was, you know, stood to me. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not complaining about it. No. I'm simply, this is how it was. And when you were at the tender age of what? You joined Sinn Féin. I wanted to join at 14 and I toddled down. But they, uh, they said, uh, sorry, uh, 16 is, the, is the, the minimum age to join. But I tell you, on, practically on my 16th birthday, I toddled down again and joined. And what was it about Sinn Féin that uh, attracted uh, oh, you? Oh, it was the book. Uh, you know, things, things have happened in my life that have, have I suppose, like the, the little boy dying. But, but uh, subsequent to that, things happen that are very important to me and seem very banal. Um, there were weird um, opening hours in the children's library in Newbridge, very weird. And because I lived two miles outside the town um, and couldn't get in and out, well, you know, that, that handily, um, I ended up taking the largest book on the shelf. I, I would just run along the shelf and take the largest book because I w- it would last until the next opening hours. And this, this time I went in, the largest book was a book called The Young Irelanders, written by T.D. Sullivan. And all it was was a, a small biographies of the Young Irelanders. You know, 1848, William Smith O'Brien, all those. And that did it. And I don't ask why, but it did it. I just decided, yes, OK. See, Maureen, I remember when I was around that age hmm. reading The Lives of the Saints <laughs> and, and wanting to be a nun for a while. Um, <laughs> is, was it like that? Or was it, was it something else? Was it something... I suppose my father was very political Uh, and uh, when we were in Chicago one of his brothers lived in Chicago and his brother's wife uh, was very political and my father and herself we'd go visiting and the whole visit would consist of my father and his brother's wife arguing about the Democrats and the Republicans. Uh, So I suppose in a way that kind of not that I was interested in American politics um, but I suppose in a way I was used to politics being discussed in the house or in somebody else's house in this case So you were <laughs> because very... my mother was totally uninterested in politics so they'd never be discussed in our house. Right. But you were listening and I reading. I suppose I was listening and I remember I always, I remember talk about precocious. In 1948 there was an election and we were just home and I decided I was all of 10. I decided that uh, it was my civic duty to understand what was going on politically in the country now that I was living in it at 10. So I, we always got a newspaper in the morning. I think we got the Independent at the time. 
So I started to sit down in the mornings and try and read all the political speeches. And of course, you can imagine I hadn't a clue what they were talking about. But it was a kind of, I suppose, an indication of of of, of where I was going, if you like. It certainly was. And it wasn't <laughs> to the main parties you were going either. No, the family supported Dev, obviously, Fianna Fáil, because my father was kind of semi-involved, I think, in the War of Independence. But um, his family was anyway. So we were Dev people. But I was willing to, <laughs> I was willing to learn if I could understand what was going on which, of course, I couldn't. And Maureen, so you, you, you finally gave up on the job in the shop and you decided that you wanted to... Well, I came to Bray. I wanted, I wanted out. I knew there was nothing going to happen in Newbridge and, you know, home life was home life. And I wanted away. I wanted away. The, the, the main, the main um, ambition of my childhood and my youth was to leave home um, and be alone and totally independent that was a real need, not just an ambition, a real need. So I left home the minute I, I felt I could be financially viable, you see, because at five bob a week, you're not going to be able to do much. So I um, I got a job in Bray in another shop. Um, and you picked, Bray, you picked Bray for a reason? Only only because it was a job. In those days, there were jobs on the paper, you know, that advertised. And only because it was advertised, it was away from home. It was a shop. I could do it. Yes. <laughs> Um, and uh, then, of course, I could also rejoin Sinn Féin and, you know, be... It was my it was my move into adulthood, if you like, and independence. And So so what were you doing at that point? The job was in the shop mm. and you were joined Sinn Féin, mm. And, mm. but Sinn Féin became almost an well, obsession the, the for the border you. campaign was going yes. on at the time, so there was a lot of... There was a lot of going on. I was in Cumberland briefly as well. Tell people about the border campaign, just very briefly. Oh. Yeah, the border campaign. Oh, I thought it was wonderful when it started. Uh, but, you know, looking back on it, a total disaster and, and awful that people were killed in it. Um, I, I mean, they thought that when they started the campaign, the people would rise up. It was, a, it was a, in those days, we were provosts, if you like. We were what the provosts subsequently became, Brits out. All would be well if the Brits left, totally ignoring the, the unionist population, totally and ignoring them and their needs and their wants, you know, you know exactly like you know the other day, Mary Lou behind the the banner Brits out, that was us in 1956. But unlike Mary Lou, you learned to handle a gun. Well, uh, well yes, I did. <laughs> I did. Yes, <laughs> so, yes. So you yes, were really yes, in there. Yes, yes, yes. But you weren't a gun woman. No, you didn't no, go out no. shooting people. Oh gosh, no. Oh gosh, no. I would have. You would have. I would have, yeah, I would have. Women weren't allowed in the IRA in those days. Who who would you have shot as a matter of interest? Well, anybody up north that I was asked to shoot. And is that because of your age, Maureen, or what was it? Do you, do you think, well, did, you come, did you come out of that phase pretty quickly because you did come out of Sinn Féin for a little while? I came out of that phase, yeah, over, it, 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 it happens gradually. You find yourself when something like, say, Aldershot happened. I was deeply unhappy. Reminders of Aldershot. Aldershot was when they, they, um, they, was it a bomb? A bomb they set in Aldershot, Aldershot barracks. Yeah. Now, they didn't kill any, any uh, military personnel. They killed working people. But even if it had been military personnel, I would have been unhappy about it. I, I, remember, being, I remember being in a pub when the news came on the radio about Aldershot and we were, it must have been a fish-in or something. We were all there, Sinn Féin people, and they all cheered and I remember thinking, no, I'm not going to cheer. This is I don't, not my don't like this. Yeah, I don't like this. Um, and kind of, but it it is a very gradual thing. 
You know, you don't suddenly wake up one morning and say, that's it, I'm, I'm not in favour of the gun anymore. So you left Sinn Féin after a while? I left in 77. Yeah. Right. You were in there for a long time? I was, I was, yeah, mm. very active for a long time. I think you think quite... Some of it was born out, I think, you know, which is an actual physical feeling mm. of not being able to to do it anymore. Yeah. But in the meantime, you were very well occupied with other things. Well, yeah, it was never, I'm happy to say politics was never the whole of my life because I've seen people to whom it was the whole of their lives. I mean, the, 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 I saw it at the very beginning. Paddy McLogan was a president of Sinn Féin or a, a chair, chair of Sinn Féin or something. And he was ousted at an Ardesh. There was a coup. Uh, I was at the Ardesh, actually, um, um, but he um, he went out the back garden and shot himself because it was his life. It was his life. He had given his whole being to the movement, to the Republican movement. And I, and I mean, I've seen people, not, not as dramatic as that, mm. but I've seen people, I've seen people to this day at a total loss of what to do with themselves uh, when, when, for one reason or another, they're not in politics. And I was never like that, happily. Quite accidentally, I mean, I didn't deliberately set out to have other things in my life, but I was always, I'd always go to the gate. I, was, I, am, a, I am an opera buff, I have to say. I, 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 um, I do like opera, and I always went to the, the DGOS spring and autumn seasons. So I always had something else. And I had friends who had no interest in politics, and we'd go out and have a great time. Now, well, that's interesting, because you sound as though you were absolutely always... No, thoroughly no, 100% no. focused yeah, on yeah. I mean let's talk about about um, the the, um, the Dublin housing action for example yeah, yeah. which I think is when you went back to Sinn Féin you left Sinn Féin for a while and then Sinn you went Féin back I for a while um, I, I, I couldn't put a finger on why I was sort of unhappy with it but then I, I think I, I say it in the documentary um, I saw a statement in, in the paper where they supported a strike by the telephonists you know the people who used to pull these these people who don't exist anymore but they were hun- almost 100% women and they went on strike and Sinn Féin came out and supported them and I thought aha they have moved I have moved in the same and we've moved in the same direction without knowing it so I went back and joined and that was because they had Carl Goulding and those had left prison and brought a socialist uh, thinking with them out of prison. And that was hence the coup, if you like, too, because it was those, those, those uh, you know, ex-prisoners and that who took over yeah. from people like poor Paddy McLogan. Yes, yes, I see. So poor Paddy was bereft. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes, he just couldn't face. And the Dublin Housing Action Committee, Maureen, it's funny how sort of well, it, history sort of re-echoes oh, and re-echoes. Just, yeah. No, what we decided to, because we had gone left, we wanted to get involved in things on the left, if you like. And uh, some of us had contested uh, local elections and things. But, I mean, we didn't know how bad the housing situation was until we we sort of started, you know, doing that, you know, contesting elections. I remember myself, I stood for the local elections over, over where um, St. Teresa's Gardens are. And, I mean... I going into St. Teresa's Gardens and meeting the people and going into to where people were renting. Terrible. It was, in those days, it was not so much uh, people needing housing, although 
although there were, there, there was a housing list, it was the conditions under which people who had housing were living. Horrendous. I remember just going into Ben Burb Street flats and not hardly being able to talk when I came out at how people lived. Um, so that's hence the Dublin Housing Action. Really. We said, well, if there's anything to get involved in here that will affect people's lives, it's the housing situation. And your tactic was to get people into unoccupied houses. Yeah, well, for the first tactic was to get the public to accept that there was a situation because none of the political parties, including Labour, uh, accepted that there was a housing emergency. Uh, so our first thing was to get people to accept that because unless you get the people uh, behind you uh, and, and what you're doing, you're, you know, you're wasting your time. So in order to do that, we needed big... So uh, one week we sat, on we sat in O'Connell Street every night and stopped the traffic. Every night for a week. So that was bound to... It. And, you know, what you want is people looking at the paper, seeing this and saying, what, what's, their, what's their gripe? And were you dragged away by the guards every uh, night? I think... I don't think we were, in fact. I think, we well, no, we stayed there for an hour and they let us, I think. But what we did get very early on was Father Michael Sweetman. He, we were on a picket. I mean, talk about being gobsmacked. We were on a picket in City Hall, our first picket for the Dublin Housing Action Committee. As I always say, six of us and a dog... Uh, but we had spare placards uh, in case anybody else did come along the railings opposite City Hall. And about 15 minutes into the picket, this priest comes walking up the hill, walked to our absolute astonishment, walks over to the, the railings and takes a placard and joins the picket. And of course, we're all, what is, what is going on here? And the, the, the consensus was he was in the wrong picket. He thought it was something to do with religion. But we all said, no, we, we leave him there for a while. It's, it's, a, it's very nice. Six of us and a priest yes. is a lot better. Uh, so, um, but anyway, we couldn't stand the, the, the suspense. We sent somebody back to the back of the picket task and what he was doing. And very simple. But, uh, he was a lovely man, a lovely man. He said to, he had started, you know, the way Jesuits, like Father McVerry, they get a flat and they start doing good works. He was in Ballymun. And, um, but he, when he had, I, I don't know, come to Dublin or started his ministry, if you like, housing was the one thing that hit him. Like us, he, he suddenly became aware of what the housing, and he promised himself that if anybody, he didn't care who it was, if anybody took up the issue of housing in Dublin, he would support them. It's interesting you should mention priests in such a sympathetic way, Maureen. Mm. Is, are you still sympathetic towards the Catholic Church or is it just individual no, 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 clerics no, 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 like no. that? I have, I have had my baptism cancelled. I, I, I went the, the official route and got it cancelled. So I'm no longer, I can't, I, I have a letter at home proving, proving it and telling me what I ca can no longer avail of, like the sacraments or a Christian burial or... Anything like that. No, 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 no. I have no, no sympathy with the church. But Father, Father Sweetman, I mean, it came out uh, during the, the camp, that campaign. It came out in huge headlines in the hurl that we were all communists. Which some of us, yeah, but some <laughs> of us were because we, it was a broad front. It wasn't just Sinn Féin. Yes. It was the Communist Party. It was Connolly Youth. It was the British and Irish Communist Organisation. They were Maoists. It was various trots. So it was a broad front of varying levels of communism, but he didn't let it affect him. He came out the next night and stood on the platform and spoke. He was a lovely man. So some clerics were and good that, people. That, yeah. Oh, oh, yes. Oh, yes. I, I, I haven't got a thing about clerics all being nasty people. I just, I don't mean, you know, if you're religious, that's fine. Just I'm not. Um, he, um, 
And that helped us enormously. You know, it gave us respectability. And then the second thing that gave us respectability was the students in UCD, the SD, SD, what do they call themselves? Students for Democratic Society, SDS. They decided to support us. So they swelled our, they would come in every night uh, as a gang, as a band with, um, with a banner. So you did and win people over. We did, we part, did. Well, part of your, 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 part of your strategy did. Then, was then, to... then in order to also uh, let it be known that there was an awful lot of empty property yeah. hanging around, that was when we decided that we would put family squatting in empty property to raise awareness of that. Yeah. Um, and that hence, after that, um, the government brought in uh, the uh, Forcible Entry and Occupation Act, which meant that if there were people squatting in property, they could just break their way in and haul them out which they hadn't had the right to do up to that. And as a result of that came uh, Mary Anderson uh, and myself challenged to the Juries Act. So it was all one thing led to another, to another, Tell to another. Tell us about that challenge to the Juries Act. Women were not allowed to serve on juries. Women, no, they weren't forbidden. The 1927 Juries Act said it's a 44 page document and there are two mentions of half the population. One is that if a man, a man had to have property to sit on a jury. But if he didn't have property, but his wife did, he could, he could sit on the jury. And the second mention was at the very back, a kind of an appendix of people who were um, um, allowed to opt out. And there was one word, women. And the rest, uh, I mean, there was one word about women, which was women. Uh, all the others who were listed, there were doctors, there were veterinary surgeons. I don't know. I haven't got the full list. But they were all there because of their jobs yeah. that emergencies might come in, like a doctor might have an emergency, a vet might have an emergency. And there were other things, you know, that people might have emergencies. But the one word for women was based solely on gender. And that was our argument. One of our arguments, obviously. So, so were they allowed to serve on juries, oh, Maureen, they could but apply. they were allowed to opt they out? They could apply. They could apply. But you had to formally apply. And what happened when you formally applied, of course, was that you were considered a nutcase. So you were objected to. In the whole history of the state, two women had sat on a jury, had succeeded. And that, presumably, I don't know the cases, and I must actually try and find out what the cases were. Presumably that was because whatever barristers were representing them felt that the women may, might be more sympathetic, you know. Right. But right. Uh, but two women in the whole history of the state. So you and Mary Anderson decided Poor Mary to... Anderson, who died a couple of years ago. Uh, she was a journalist with the Irish Independent. Yeah. She was uh, the women's, I think she was women's editor or something. We were out on a demo protesting about the Forcible Occupation and Entry Act because it was aimed at squatters. And we, we were demonstrating outside the doll and we were arrested. And uh, we had Dudley Potter was our, my solicitor. And uh, he said, do you know, Maureen? He said, I think, given your kind of history, maybe we should go for a trial by jury. Up to this, we kind of went summary trial down in this district court. And I said, well, whatever you think, you know. But it was only then, it really, and we were feminists, you know. It was only then we realised the jury were going to be all men and all property owning. Two things, because our demo had been against property owners. Well, by definition, we're going to object to your Absolutely. So um, um, I had been introduced, I, um, um, I had a mutual friend, Evan Boland. I was friendly with Evan Boland and she was very friendly with Mary Robinson. So I'd kind of met Mary through Evan. 
And uh, I, I don't know that I even planned to ask her, but I, I bumped into her or something one day and I said to her, you know, Mary, we're going to come before f- 12 property owning men. Now, I would like to protest, but on the other hand, I don't want to be sent down for contempt of court. So what do we do? And of course, Mary being Mary, you know, said, well, there's only one thing to do. You have to challenge the Juries Act. It sounded almost as if she'd been waiting yes. <laughs> on somebody to... to and and to, you might not be wrong about that. She always, I might she, not be wrong no. about that. No, no. And you see, you did have to be affected by it. So we were the ideal candidates because we were women and we were affected by it in that we could be sent to jail by this jury, this male property-owning jury. So was, so that, we, was it easy in the end, Maureen? Um, oh, well, they, 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 they played a blinder herself the poor, the late Donald Barrington, who who died last year, um, Dudley himself, of course, did the 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 the, the dog work, if you like, the the, the you know, getting it all ready. Uh, well, for us, it was. It took a long time. I thought it was a long time, but I've been told since that some people wait twenty years to get a to get a judgment. We got it in five. Five years. Yeah, and we took we took it on two grounds. We didn't just take it on the on the male ground. We took it on the property owning qualification as well, and we won it on both. And Subsequently, we didn't get it in the High Court. Did you drink champagne? Had a party. <laughs> yeah, and, and I did actually get a, a bit squiffy. Did for the first and only time in my life. Is yes, that right? yes, yes. June Levine, the late June yes, Levine, uh, yes. offered us her house yes. for a party. We did. We had a party. Now, Maureen, you did end up in jail at one point. That was Vietnam. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Where you poured cow's blood and stuff and on very the under. Strong. I remember. I, I believe, you know, that each. Each generation has its cause. I think the present generation, it's the environment, you know, and, and quite well, well done to them. Yes. And my previous generation, to me, it was the Spanish Civil War. Yes. But ours yes. was Vietnam. There's no doubt about it. Vietnam radicalised a lot of people. But you tore down the American flag at the embassy. We and t- took down the flag and burnt it. And I, I had had somebody who knew somebody in an abattoir and he got me two bottles of blood. And it's a very effective way of protesting against a war. And I, I think the one thing I would go out on now, even with me mobility scooter or me stick, would be a war, a war demo. I, I really feel very... Anyway, we smashed the bottles on the steps of the embassy and the blood, of course, went everywhere. It was very effective because when you looked at the American embassy, all you saw was the blood down the steps. Some poor sod, of course, had to wash it off. And, well, they did, <laughs> but you, cer- a- you certainly made an impression. We did. And you did wind up in Mount Joy. We wound up. We got three months. And well, what I think what's interesting about that, you said it was probably the worst thing that's happened to you. Yeah, because, you know, being somebody who was very used to being independent and do go where I wanted to go, be who I wanted to be, it wasn't so much... It, I suppose, well, it was being locked up, I suppose, but it also was being, you know, every minute of your day being... Ruled by somebody else. Also, it goes back to your loner inclinations, yes, Maureen, doesn't yes, it? Yeah, you yeah. really, really can't stand to be too long. No, I not think, too in, long. No, in human exactly. company. Yeah, because yeah. I don't want to sound because you know, whenever, whenever there's a, a a serial killer, whenever there's a serial killer, he's he is always described as a loner. So yes. I'm 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 loath to you don't describe. Don't live in the basement, do you? <laughs> I'm loath to describe myself as a loner, and I do love my friends, but it's very important for me to be able to go into an empty room and close a door behind me. Very important. It's my sanity. And prison didn't allow that. Were you sharing it, a cell? It didn't. No, 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 no. We had cells to ourselves. Oh, had you? Oh, yeah. It was a very small uh, women's population then. I yes. wouldn't say there was more than 10 people in 
10, 12 people in Mountjoy. You see, it was pre the drugs. Yeah. Drugs weren't on the, on the streets that much. Uh, a lot of it was begging, itinerants for begging, women for being drunk and smashing a window, which nine times out of ten they did deliberately to get in and get a bit of warmth and a meal or two. So that was it. The Irish Times Women's Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition. Sumptuously smooth, dark chocolate. So, moving along, you set up the Prisoners' <laughs> Rights Association. Did, because, of did, course, you yes. couldn't just leave, leave well alone <laughs> at that stage. You did something else there. The anti-apartheid movement you were involved well, in. Was, very was, closely yeah, involved was, in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and um, I nearly went to South Africa. Before before I went back into Sinn Féin, there was nothing in my life kind of thing that was, well, when I, that makes me sound now as if it was my whole life. But I I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I nearly went to South Africa anyway. Think, I was getting bored, I think, was what really... What were you going to do in South Africa? Um, God knows I probably have ended up in the ANC, and I, so I'm glad I didn't. But would you believe? And these things happened to me. I don't know if they happened to other people. I was going, I, at the time I had a bed sit in Aylesbury Road. Now, I don't know why anybody was doing a collection at the end of Aylesbury Road. That was a very but, fancy place to have a bed Well, sit. it was a fancy place, but it, it, it was, there was nobody coming up and down. I don't know who, who was giving him money. But anyway, I gave him a few bob and I said to him, do you object to white people going to South Africa, even if they're not racist? Because at the time I had kind of thought I might. And he said, yes, we do. So I cancelled my application. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Okay, so that was that. Yeah, but Thankfully. It, isn't it funny that that happened to me? What yeah. was he doing at the end of, of Aylesbury Road? Well, yes. there wasn't exactly a passing trade for his... his he was collecting, obviously, for the anti apartheid question movement. for you to ask at the same time. Well, I, I had a... You know, I had, obviously, queries about South Africa. I mean, if I went, I wasn't going to be... I was probably going to join the Black Sash anyway, you know, but... <laughs> well, well, Maureen, that probably brings us up to around women's liberation time. Oh, yes. Well, that happened after. Well, the one thing you can do in prison, of course, apart from anything else, is think. Yeah. And I'd had a lot of, because the Sinn Féin office was kind of handy, we'd a lot of Americans com- coming to Ireland and they'd find them, they'd end up in the Sinn Féin office. And some of them were women, obviously, and they'd sit down and we'd chat about politics and what were they doing in America. And, of course, they were full of the women's liberation movement, which none of us had ever even, even considered. So when I was in prison, you know, I started you, thinking about these things and thinking about what they had raised about women, even in uh, uh, progressive political parties, you know, who were always put stamping the envelopes and making the tea. And I thought, yeah, OK, I can, I can relate to that kind of thing, you know. Although I have to say now, Sinn Féin wasn't the worst place for, for, for discrimination on, on grounds of gender. But anyway, I decided that when I left prison, we'd, we'd have a go at founding a, the Women's Liberation Movement. Um, and Mary Marr and Mary Anderson. It was nearly all journalists. Yeah. Poor Mary McCutcheon. Did you know Mary McCutcheon? Very, very late. Herself and her twins were killed in a car crash very early on in the in the movement. Well, she was part of it. Uh, Mary Kenny, of course. Nell McCafferty. So it was a lot of journalists. Um, um, so that's that's came and about. Women's liberation, did that feel like you had found your tribe, Maureen? Or what did that feel like? Did you think, no, this is my next cause? Or No, yeah, yeah I think you're right. It was just my next cause. I didn't feel... 
I didn't feel... Uh, I mean, obviously, I mean, we get together once a year now for a, for a meal and um, Mary Kenny comes. Now, Mary Kenny and myself... <laughs> you wouldn't. You probably wouldn't have a lot in common wouldn't at this have, stage. I, I can't think of anything we'd have in common. But she's to me, she's an old comrade. And we'll meet up and chat and, 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 and be in touch until the day I die. And does it does it give you a, a deeper understanding of what happens to people as they as they as they grow well, up and grow yeah, old, Maureen? Well, a more a more tolerant approach because people are entitled to change their mind. You can't stop people from changing their mind, and that's all she did. That's that, all she did effectively was change her mind. She went back to God, and well, you know, good for God. And conservatism of a higher Yes, order. well, I'm not sure she was ever ever that terribly radical politically, but she certainly wasn't religious. But she changed her mind, so big deal. And Maureen, that's very interesting coming from somebody who spent most of their life in Sinn Féin, working for Sinn Féin, mm. supporting their ideals and everything. Yeah. It's it's um, People give what they can. I remember Mrs Guy, who was a great old comrade of mine, um, but I remember her criticising somebody who was leaving the prisoners' rights organisation, actually. And I remember saying to her, they gave what they could when they could. Things have changed for them. We we should be happy and congratulate them on the time that they did give. And that's always been my view. You can't force people to, no. to stay against their will. And they get burnout. Hmm? They get burnout, as you say. They get they burnout. Their, their lives change. You know, things happen. And people are... In, I mean, you have to allow people the right to change their mind. So tell us a little bit about women's liberation and how that, how you felt about that movement as it was growing. A lot of people would have said it was very middle class. Yeah, well, we kind of tried to, to we had a big fight. Uh, we, we had 10, 10 objectives and the big fight was centred all around the one, uh, one family, one home. Because that was socialist and there were, there were a few of them now who, but we won the fight. We won the fight. We got it into one of the ten objectives. But there would have been, and people did object to us going out on the May Day parades, uh, things like that. You see, the women's liberation movement only lasted a year, so, uh, uh, and, and then it broke into a lot of very good organisations. People, people found their... Yes. Their particular cause. I always uh, instance Nuala Fennell, who went um, on, you know. Yes, yes. Uh, with, so, with so in a way, I would suggest to people that when you start an organisation in Ireland, you know, Brendan Behan said, let's have the split first. Yes. Uh, but I would suggest to people that that might be the way to go. You know, have it for a year, set it up, set the objectives, you know, do all the sort of the donkey work. And then maybe the idea is that people will find their metier and branch off into... Yes. It, it may be the way to go for organisations, some organisations. such a positive way of looking at a split, actually, and at people changing their minds and everything. One of the things that, that, that did strike me very forcibly, Maureen, was a lot of people listening to this now, they might not have been born when, all, mm. when the no. Northern yeah. Ireland Civil Rights Association oh, yeah. was yeah. going yeah. on yeah. and Sinn Féin's role in, 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 the, in the protests. Yeah. And you are adamant that... The, this, that it was the brainchild, that the NICRA was the brainchild of Sinn Féin. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sinn Féin in, in discussions, if you like, with elements in the North. Now, I wasn't part of the discussion, so I, do, I can't say exactly who, mm. who I'm talking about. But it was. I know it was because I was at Hard Collier meetings where it was discussed. I was, and and we, we went to Derry in, in, on the 5th, what was it, the 5th of October, 1968, when, the, when, when all hell broke loose. Um, uh, can I say something here? And would you leave it in for me? 
I I was at a meeting. I think I can't remember a housing meeting or something. It was all kicking off in Derry. The, the British army was expected in. And I wanted to go to Derry. But I, wa- I, I wanted to hitch up to Derry and I didn't want to hitch on my own. So I announced at this meeting that I was going to Derry. I was going to hitch to Derry. And, and everybody knew what was happening in Derry. It was very unpleasant. Uh, and would anybody come with me? And this young woman, who couldn't have been more than 18, said, I'll go with you. So I arranged to meet, uh, take the bus to the airport, get off the bus and start to hitch to Derry with this young woman that I don't know. All I know is that her name was Tara. Can't remember her last name. We went to Derry. We, we were, we were, we were um, uh, gassed. We were, um, I sent her across the road to a group of people to ask, Did anybody, would anybody put us up for the night? Because <laughs> this is what she came in handy for. Because I, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't go across to somebody and ask to be put up at the night. But she did. She toddled across the road. An old man said he'd bring us home, give us, give us a bed for the night. We hitched to Belfast, where there was even more dangerous, because they were going round Belfast with baseball bats and I don't know what, sides, I don't know what. Uh, and we got split up. She went off to Andersonstown somewhere and I, I, I was in somewhere else. But what I would like to know, A, is where is she now? But B, what were her parents thinking to allow her to go with a blank stranger, hitch to a war zone and not see her for, 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 for three nights, I think it was? Well, we hope they saw her again. <laughs> oh, yes. We but, don't know, but, do but, we? But didn't see her for those. I would just yes. love to meet her again. She'd be about, if she was she'd 18 be, then. She she'd was about, about 18. I just cannot, when I think back of it, so I, get, I, get, was I it? get scared when I think back of it, of what could have happened to her. Yes. In yes. my care. Yeah, yeah. So if she, and I don't know any other way of, so I'd really love you to, to, so to put that in. So she'd be about really 69, would. 70 now, wouldn't uh, she? But, well, if she was 18 then, that was 69, 68, yeah. 69. So that would make her heading for 70 yeah, or 70. Yeah, it would, yes, yes. And I well, would Tara, love if you're to out there and you hitched Tara, to Derry. Tara, if you're out there and you hitched to, to Derry with me, would you get in touch? And I'd say they were very memorable days, Tara. It's unlikely you've forgotten them. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was, but you, you said people's democracy actually hijacked that movement. They and did. more and very they seriously, did. you they say, yes, yeah. this is why the troubles I do continued believe, for 30 and as years. I, as I said in the thing, I do believe every, anything that was achieved, and you know, let's face it, what was achieved, um, could have been achieved without one death. If the civil rights movement had been allowed to carry on as it was planned. That's such an interesting view, Maureen, because people would expect to hear from a died-in-the-wool Sinn Féin that you would have fought your last drop of blood, whether it was physical or... No, no, no. I mean, you could even see the the, the march across the north of Ireland by people's democracy. I mean, it was a total... um, To the unionists, what did they think was going to happen? And it's not so much that, you know, I mean, and that was the antithesis of what the Northern Ireland and NICRA was trying to achieve, which was trying to bring in, trying to woo, if you like, the Northern majority. Now, obviously, there were... There Do you were, think they could have? Do you think it could have been achieved? Well, there were people, there were people in NICRA who were Protestants. I mean, you can think of people, you can, you can tick off people who, who, who were Protestants. I mean, Gusty Spence eventually became very friendly with the, with the Workers' Party. It was possible over a period. Now, it wasn't going to happen overnight. Uh, 
by any means. And there would have been a lot of compromises along the way, but it would have been done without anybody being killed. That was my thing, you see. I was heading towards pacifism. Yes. And you were heading towards it at that stage, Maureen, and you got there. And I mean, the things that were achieved was Stormont. I mean, the, 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 the provost killed people because they supported the idea of, of, a, of a government instalment. You know, I mean, what was achieved and what was lost to achieve it is appalling. So Maureen, looking back in your life now, is there anything you would have done differently? Um, stayed in school. Yes. <laughs> Stayed in school as a child. I, I can't think of anything as an adult. If you'd I, stayed I in school, what do you think might have happened? Oh, I think I would have liked a profession of some kind. Better job. Not better in, in monetary terms, yeah. but more You might have studied law or something. More satisfying. Law, yeah, or medicine. Uh, I would have liked to to have done that. In, in it, but it would have been a parallel universe. It would have been a different life. You know, it wasn't going to happen. Simple as that. Apart from anything else, my, my people wouldn't have had the funds. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> you see, my problem with education was I had no Irish. Yeah. And in those days, if you didn't have Irish, you couldn't do exams. So I could never get an exam. I don't even have the, what was the, what was the name of the, the lowest exam? You could, the primary. Yeah, I don't no know if you remember it or not. I do. But at the end of you your... You did at 11, I think, or yeah, something. Yeah, you did the primary. I couldn't do the primary. I don't have the primary cert. <laughs> and were you ever in a position to go back, Maureen? Did anybody ever suggest you go, you, you go to college at this stage? No, in those days that wasn't easy. Nowadays it's wonderful and I'm so happy for people now that can leave school, uh, you know, work for a while, travel the world, whatever, and go back. I think that's wonderful and I think it should, should, should always be there. Because, you know, you're, you're not mature enough you know, maybe to make decisions at 18, 19, 20, whatever age. Do you think people. not? No, I think it's good to maybe go out there into the big bad world. The Chinese used to do it. Do you remember when the the, the, the Red Brigades or whatever were in China? They made um, uh, school leavers go out into the countryside and work on the farms and work on the... There's a lot to be said for that. Is there? There was a lot to be said for that because then you, 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 know, you see how the other half lives and also it, it, it could influence what you do subsequently with your life. So is that what you'd like to see now? Do you think? Well, it is out there now. People can go back. Yes. But no. Yes. Um, and Maureen, in the end, I mean, it's sort of a lot of people, would, would, you know, who know of you and know your very, very activist focused mm. career and everything. They would actually maybe a bit, a bit surprised um, at how much more conciliatory you sound. Well, maybe old age. Is this something that's happened in, in recent maybe years? Maybe old age. I, was, I don't think, I, you know, maybe I was. Other people would have to say that. But I don't think I was ever a fanatic. I think I was always open to some form of argument, I think. Maybe apart from the first four or five years in Sinn Féin, but I think after that, you grow up, you, you meet people who maybe aren't of your... But they're nice people. I mean, meeting Father Father Sweetman, for instance, who probably, you know, in other ways I wouldn't agree with a lot of the time, but a wonderful human being, you know. Um, and so what is your life like now, Maureen? You're what age now? My, I always say to people, once a volunteer, always a volunteer. Yes. Uh, I last 24 or five years of volunteer in the credit union. Is that right? So I'm, a, I'm a director of Fairview Credit Union. And that, that's my activity now. I yes. can just about do that. And you still live alone? Yes, with two cats and a dog. 
That sounds delightful. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> and <laughs> to you, me, that is perfection. Yes. Maybe two dogs, but anyway, two cats and a dog. So you're still a loner. <clears throat> you started out as a loner and you yes, remained a loner yes, to that yes, extent. Yes. And yes, yet but, you are an extremely but with social a lovely, woman. a lovely group of neighbours that I can call on at any time and a lovely group of friends. I have been the one, the one glorious thing that I have had in my life is great friends. I really have had the most wonderful friends and still do. But Jack Nicholson, whom I don't like, actually, as an actor, I really don't. But he was asked once what was the worst thing about getting old. And everybody thought he was going to say you can't pull the birds or you can't get the parts. And he said, losing your friends. And he was absolutely spot on. And I didn't expect it from him. And that is the one sadness about getting older, if you like. Your friends are gone and they're not coming back. And if, like me, you don't believe in an afterlife, that's it. Goodbye. I think, I think that's why some of us still hang in there, Maureen, <laughs> for that very reason. Um, right, right, yes. What somebody said to me once and embarrassed the hell out of me. I said, well, I don't believe. That. The, the, that's what started me, in, in fact, with, with religion was the afterlife. I said, I don't believe. And she said to me, oh, I, would, I, I, I intend to, to meet up with you in the afterlife. And of course, I had to backpedal furiously about how... <laughs> well, I hope you meet up with her. I hope she's right. And I hope I meet up with you too. Maureen de Burka, thank you so much for coming into the Women's Podcast. Thank, thank you, You Kathy. are and will remain an inspiration to all of us. Thanks, thank you Kathy. so much. And that's it for today. Thanks to Maureen de Burka for speaking to me today. And a reminder that the documentary, A Loner's Instinct, will screen at the IFI in Dublin on Monday, April 8th. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and all good podcast apps. If you do want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or you can email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. Also, we do enjoy a bit of praise from time to time, as you know by now. So if you like what we do, then please do head along to iTunes and give us a review. The podcast is produced by Roisin Ingle and Jennifer Ryan. With JJ Vernon on sound, I'm Cathy Sheridan. And until next time, thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.